0: It's great to have extended footage of him on stage performing or on a talk show in full regalia as i'll call it and yet the uh, negative side of that is the fact that we don't get any of the explanatory material or just the illumination wouldn't it be great to have an interview with somebody who actually designed and made the costumes and to talk about how many sequins went on there or how they had to like you know paint it on him or pull him in, you know all the things that would be fascinating detail it's just not there and that's again as a mixed blessing the film is trippy and trippy films just want to immerse you in the experience they're head trips they're not gonna like slow down and more academically say, well, this is how the costume was made. And again, I don't want the film to be like incredibly conventional. I really don't want it to like slow down that way, but Marie's point is so well taken. Along the way, you could certainly work in some quick clips at least of people who were costume designers, who were agents, who were shaping a career.
1: Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westheimer,
0: And I'm Mike Giuliano.
1: And today we're gonna talk about Moon Age Daydream and The Woman King, starting with Moon Age Daydream. All right, Mike, let's start with how much of a David Bowie fan are you?
0: I am a big David Bowie fan. (laughs) You know, I'm gushing actually, because just growing up, particularly the Ziggy Stardust period from the early seventies, it was so extreme. It was so, it was bending, not just gender, but just bending all sorts of things in terms of rock and roll. And to the credit of, and, and I actually, I did see David Bowie in concert once at, at Meriwether Post Pavilion in 1990. So, you know, although the concert itself was a little disappointing, because that was the tour where he announced he was saying farewell to his greatest hits. And and he just sort of went through the motions of playing some of those songs. But still, to see him do it live, you know, meant a lot to me, even though ultimately it was just kind of, you know, wrote for him. He just, he was kind of tired of that material by then. But, but anyway, the happy memory of having seen him live, at least. But the thing about this documentary is it's extremely idiosyncratic. It's not a conventional screen biography. The director of it, Brett Morgan, has done a number of documentaries and varied subject matter. He did one film about the Chicago 7. He did Kurt Cobain. So he's done rock and roll. He did uh, Jane Goodall. So he's, he's done he's done Apes. <laughs> he's done all <laughs> kinds of... He did Robert Evans, the Hollywood producer. I mean, he's a really good documentary filmmaker, but he's got his quirks. And I guess David Bowie did too. So that's how I want to first hit this film straight on Moon Age Daydream. So a very unconventional documentary in terms of what's there and what's not there. I really enjoyed this film. Uh, yeah, I you know, I confess quite happily I'm a David Bowie fanatic. I, I, I love his work, particularly Ziggy Stardust, early 70s, but even later, the Let's Dance, you know, just in more accessible, easier music. But it's it's pure honey to the ears, I'll say it's it's really great music. But here's where I have mixed feelings about it as, as a documentary. And, and I, I loved uh, you know, it's it's like two hours and 15 minutes and I wouldn't want it to be any shorter. I mean, I really, really liked the film but still some reservations. We're talking here about sex drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, how can you escape that, That you know, in terms of what's the, the narrative structure or what one expects it to be the narrative structure? Okay, let's talk about sex first. People tend to. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that first. David Bowie's uh, fabled bisexuality is definitely discussed both in the archival footage and in some more recent interviews and clips. And, all. and And very quickly, I'll note that this filmmaker was given a lot of access by Bowie's estate. Bowie died in 2016, sad to say. But the estate opened up and, and made a lot of material available so that's a blessing for the film. Some of the concert footage from the 70s is just fabulous. And some of the interviews like you know, talk shows are really, really amusing, really entertaining. But anyway, in terms of the sex, okay, the bisexuality gets discussed and think about how cutting edge that was in the early '70s, you know, it's one reason that he became so famous was that he was sort of infamous, right? Like, wh- who or what is this, right? We can't put this. <laughs> we can't put this performer in a box, you know. He's, he's, he's something beyond that, and he played with that, and he had fun with that. as that an image. However, here's where it gets curious. In the film, where he as he settles into middle age and, and then a little beyond, his second wife, Iman, who's of course famous in her own right, she gets a, a good bit of time in the film. You'll see footage of them together and discussion of her. What's curious here is the complete absence of any mention of Bowie's first wife, Angie. She's, I mean, not once, not a single word. You know, you'd have to know that already. You would think Iman was the first wife or something. No, she was the second wife. So the film is full of omissions like that. It's very, sometimes you can sort of see the selective process. Sometimes it's just kind of baffling. Why this and and not that. Uh, Okay, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We, we, We covered sex, now onto drugs. Drugs are not mentioned once in the film and yet when you read about Bowie's career he was hardly the only rock and roller back then who was known to to ingest various illegal substances and how that might have affected things one way or another and when the director was asked about this i read an interview with him where the director Brett Morgan said, well, he said he didn't feel the need to mention that because it just seemed obvious to him in some of the older footage that the guy was high. <laughs> you know, he just sort of did. And I thought, well, it wouldn't hurt to have some, have some kind of mention of it, if not by Bowie, then by somebody else. OK, so sex, drugs, and on to rock and roll. The heart of this film is rock and roll. And the music is absolutely terrific. And, and again, a masterful use of archival footage and the editing and weaving it together. It's really, really mesmerizing. But even there, it's a quirky and idiosyncratic film. David Bowie, you know, has a handful of hits that we all know, uh, you, know you can know, deeper into the catalog. Indeed, the film's title is, is one of those lesser known cuts of music, but, you know, the famous songs we all expect from Bowie, you will hear almost all of them in the film, and oftentimes at, at full length, or at least most of, uh, of the song. Here's a curious omission. One of his most famous songs, "Young Americans," does not appear anywhere in the film. And and you know, st- say with the end credits because they're just loaded with with the, you know uh, musical references too. But even there, I kept waiting for it to pop up, like at the very end of the film. It's not there. Now, if I were making a two hour and fifteen minute long documentary about David Bowie, I think "Young Americans" would be somewhere in the in the film. I mean, I'm hearing it in my head as I say this, right? So, Marie, let me turn it back over to you in the fact that in the sense that. The film, I think, is really entertaining. There's so much to be said for it. But it has some curious decisions that, are, that have been made about what to include and what not to put in. And, and the film itself, I think, sometimes seems a little unruly that way. Like even in terms of talking about his early life, you do learn some things, but other things you don't really learn. Almost like they don't care. It's almost like sort of tossed off. And he goes here, he goes there. And it's kind of piecemeal in some ways, which is not entirely satisfying because I couldn't see the rationale sometimes. Not that it has to be a conventional public television-type documentary, you know, paint-by-number kind of thing. doesn't have to be that, but I'm not quite sure even what the director's going for in places. Maybe it, it's his cinematic equivalent of how Bowie's music could hit you that way and bounce this way and that, perhaps, but maybe I'm being too generous there. I think it's just a little, not quite sloppy, but just maybe not fully thought through at times.
1: You know, I'm going to second almost everything you said. I do think the psychedelic look to it is sort of a trying to tie in with Bowie's you know, larger than life flamboyancy. But I agree, there are a lot of things missing that I thought would be at least mentioned. Now, of course, the movie's already two hours and 15 minutes. I mean, how long did we want to sit there? You know, you have to at some point cut things out or, you know, make it into a mini series. But I was surprised there was no mention of the threesome with Mick Jagger. I was really surprised that there was no mention of his children. And I, you know, and I'm thinking about Get Back, which was the, the Beatles story of them making that album and how well that was done. And that's what I think was missing here. It wasn't, it didn't feel like a journey through his career as much as it was a, a collection of snapshots, all kind of dumped out on the floor, and you know, you're rummaging around them, and they're all individually interesting, but I didn't feel like it held together as a narrative. And I couldn't believe they didn't take advantage of the song Golden Years when they were talking about his later life. That's my favorite Bowie song, by the way. I was waiting for it, waiting for it, and it never came. Of course, you know, like I said, you can't put everything in there, but I thought those were were three major omissions. Mick Jagger, The Kids, and Golden Years.
0: Yeah, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying, and and I'm very strongly agreeing with your use of a term like psychedelic. There's a kind of psychedelic sensibility of the film, and To its credit, or at least to its intentions, I think it's trying to somehow mimic or emulate what it would be like to actually be at a Bowie concert or be immersed in in those songs. And, you know, sometimes like a narrative through line or logic even just sort of takes, you know, a trip to the side there because you're just in the moment. Right. And I think the film has a a trippy quality to it. That's very deliberate. Emotionally, it pulled me in. But intellectually, I was like Marie saying, why isn't this song there? Why isn't that song there? Why, why isn't his first wife there? The notorious anecdote with, with, involving Mick Jagger that you mentioned, things like that. That's fascinating material. In a film of two hours and 15 minutes, I think you could work that in. I mean, there are other places you could probably cut a little bit and work in something else. And, and so, again, even though it's a really entertaining film, it's also in some ways a really frustrating film.
1: You know, Mick Jagger is still alive. They could have even interviewed him to, you know, say something about it. You know,
0: I'm not sure he'd want to talk about it particularly, (laughs) but they could at least make the attempt.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I thought was an omission was that David Bowie famously had one pupil that was enlarged because of an accident he had early in his life. And it was one of the things that made him unusual looking and sort of fascinating. And I was surprised they didn't at least refer to that.
0: Well, in terms of how unusual David Bowie looked, I almost would do like a show and tell right now with these images of Bowie in the Ziggy Stardust period. I mean, even now, like decades later, it's like, whoa, it still sort of takes you back. And one of the clips I absolutely love in the film is it's it's a British TV talk show and then sort of fatuous host. And Bowie is in full <laughs> regalia. I mean he's basically in drag, right? And he's wearing these, these really, ex, I'll call them extreme shoes, okay? The elevated heels and this. And, that. and the interviewer is being kind of playful in a mischievous way. And asking, tell me about your shoes there. Are those like boys' shoes or girl shoes or mm-hmm. bisexual shoes? And Bowie smiles. And like this kind of wiggly and and, and says, Oh, yes, there's shoe shoes, silly. You know, <laughs> you know, and it's just a great moment where, where you see what he's doing to the culture. He's deliberately rattling things that way. And 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 you know, the, the film actually has quite a bit of imagery that way of, of Bowie being so playful with it. And again, that's why one reason why it's such an enjoyable film when you realize. You know, he was very smart about this. He knew what he was doing, you know, culturally. And he Bowie's career had various phases, right? And he talks about that in the film, actually. The, the Ziggy period, which we all love so much. But then, you know, later periods of music in Berlin, more quote unquote serious. But then with Let's Dance in 1983 and, and the years after that, just to be entertaining. And, and there's a great interview clip with Bowie where he talks about this. You know, I didn't feel like I had to be serious or to prove anything. I just wanted to entertain. And when you get some of that dance music from the early mid 80s it's wonderful music. I mean, it, you know, it, it's in my head now as I'm talking about it. And he just thought it's enough to go out and, and to please a crowd, you know, to entertain people that way. And so you do actually you do get a sense of his personality and of his thought process. And that's to the film's credit. It does give you a real sense of Bowie as a performer and as a thinking performer.
1: The other thing that they didn't include there is very much about him as you know a film star, given that it's a movie. You would have thought they would have had some more archival footage of him. In particular, I'm thinking about The Prestige, one of my favorite movies of all time, where he plays Tesla. And it's such a wonderful role for him because, you know, he even to the end, he was sort of, I wouldn't say a recluse, but an enigma. You know, he was always somebody unusual enough that, you know, he he looked different, he dressed different, he just came across different. So to have him play Tesla was just perfect because- he could be somebody that you really believed had, you know, a really groundbreaking idea and was just a, a genius.
0: Marie, here's one of the most frustrating aspects of the film. I admire David Bowie as, as a screen actor as much as, as, as a performer. He has such a range of films he appeared in. What's frustrating about this documentary is there actually are quite a few clips from his movies, but they're not, they're not tagged, they're not labeled, and they're too brief. They just kind of pop in like if you know them already, it's like, oh, my goodness, it's this film or that film. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, for instance, which I think they sample a little too often. But, but you know, dipping into his filmography, but no explanation, not even in terms of a film title. At the very end, if you read the end credits, you get all that. But in terms of his versatility as a screen actor, earlier, Marie, when when you mentioned how distinctive-looking Bowie is, I was about to say odd, but how (laughs) distinctive-looking he is, Uh, think about The Man Who Fell to Earth, 1976. He looks like an alien, indeed. He's totally plausible as an alien, right? You get that aspect. But then you look at other films he did. You mentioned The Prestige, but Basquiat, Twin Peaks, not surprising he would work with David Lynch, Fire Walk With Me. He was in that, that Lynch feature film. The Hunger, Just a Gigolo, Marlene Dietrich's final film, all sorts of films that he appeared in and like even more bizarre when you think about the time he worked with Martin Scorsese in The Last Temptation of Christ. David Bowie plays Punch's pilot now think about that this as a screen actor he played everybody from an outer space alien to Punch's pilot you know or to Tesla I mean that's range as an actor and, and I think the film should have spent more time actually labeling the clips and, and putting them in some kind of context what it doesn't do a good job of actually is with his stage work where he really got terrific reviews when he was on Broadway in The Elephant Man um, he didn't originate the role I actually interviewed Philip Anglim, who had, had done that role already in, in New York but The Elephant Man is is really a strong play and of course became guess what you know a David Lynch film and you know also a really strong film but here's what I'm getting at is in The Elephant Man you see him as a stage actor and you realize his acting ability you know because in The Elephant Man he's playing this man with an unusual medical condition but the play and then also it does not rely on prosthetics the play relies just on the actor's own physiognomy and ability to you know, strike the right body poses and, and have the right body language, if you will. Bowie is terrific in that, in, in, that, in that play. When you see the excerpts from it, he's totally in that character. So what I'm getting at in my usual long-winded way is that Bowie had such a distinctive and, and wide-ranging film career, and he did have some stage work specifically The Elephant Man, it's all sampled. It's all in the film we're talking about, Moon Age Daydream, but it's in that kind of snippety, not quite woven together way. So I don't think you really learn much about him as a film actor in particular because it just it's all sort of chopped up and tossed in. What do you think? Because I feel like if you already know those films, yeah, you bring that with you as you watch it. If you were watching it just, you know, clean slate, fresh, I don't think you'd really learn about his, his screen career. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's an omission because, you know, obviously people who are going to the movies to see a movie about David Bowie would be interested in other movies about David Bowie. I mean, that seems obvious. And all the things that you mentioned are all true, all interesting roles. The other thing I think they could have spent not a whole lot of time on, but some is, you know, the costume makers that he must have worked with, what those consults must have looked like. Did he do the drawings and come up with them? Or did he work with someone who helped him create the looks that he came up with? Because, you know, After, you know, you look at him and then you look at somebody like Cher or Lady Gaga, other like over the top looking performers where they really put it out there. I mean, David Bowie is like the only male artist I can think of who did that, but we don't get to see any of that process.
0: Well, when you mentioned share, I immediately thought of the name Bob Mackie. You know, we know right. who did the dresses, right? Who was the Bob Mackie for David Bowie? This is where the film is a mixed blessing because it's wonderful to see David Bowie in full drag. You know, whatever, whatever image he's projecting, it's, it's so uniquely his, right? It's David Bowie. Here's the mixed blessing. It's great to have extended footage of him on stage performing or on a talk show in full regalia, as I'll call it. And yet the uh, negative side of that is the fact that we don't get any of the explanatory material or just the illumination. Wouldn't it be great to have an interview with somebody who actually designed and made the costumes and to talk about how many sequins went on there or how they had to like, you know, paint it on him or pull him it, you know, all the things that would be fascinating detail. It's just not there. And that's, again, as a mixed blessing, the film is trippy. And trippy films just want to emerge you on the experience, their head trips. They're not going to like slow down and more academically say, well, this is how the costume was made. And again, I don't want the film to be like incredibly conventional. I really don't want it to like slow down that way. But Marie's point is so well taken. Along the way, you could certainly work in some quick clips, at least of people who were costume designers, who were agents, who were shaping a career. We all know that Bowie ultimately made his own career, but you don't work alone you know, so just as the first wife isn't even mentioned, all those other aspects of the career just simply aren't there. It's not like they're concealing them. It's just like they don't care to to give you any of that. It's just not there.
1: But I would say go see it, if only just to listen to it, because obviously the music is just amazing. So oh, absolutely,
0: Mike, you- absolutely. I mean, and the music is spectacular at times. I mean, it's just it's Bowie at his best, and and, and so just watch that concert footage, and you can forgive almost every, everything else in the film. And Marie and I are talking about omissions and so on, but during a concert sequence, you're not going to complain about that. You're just totally in the music.
1: Yeah, you'll be glad you got to see it. So let's move on, Mike, to talk about the Woman King, and you know this has gotten this is so much anticipated, and I don't know if you follow Instagram at all, but Viola Davis has been posting the workouts that she has was doing to prepare for this role. And boy, does she look great. She is so strong and fierce. Of course, I love Viola Davis. I think she can do no wrong. So I went in, you know, already knowing I was going to be impressed with with what she was going to do with it. And I thought she was absolutely amazing in this story, which is based on true events, but it doesn't really flesh out those events completely There's a lot of things I think are great about this movie, and I think there's some flaws as well. Where do we start, Mike?
0: Well, you know, there's an expression often used nowadays in marketing films, like so often in the opening credits, like based on a true story, this and that. And I've become almost cynical about that. I want to have a movie that says like it's based on a false story or something. You know, (laughs) they're always like, like, this really happened. But the other expression based on, but this is a film that's more like inspired by, you know, real events. And all jesting aside, it's really based on a fascinating historical episode. Namely, it involves female warriors who were part of a pre-colonial kingdom in Dahomey in in West Africa. And the story's taking place in 1823. I mean, I've read a little bit about that, but, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot watching the film. It's fascinating historical material. And the film itself, just based on what I've described it as, is of course very much about female empowerment. So behind the camera, you have a female director. When you start looking at the the screenwriting and the cinematography and various other categories, there are a lot of women working on this film that's about women and within the film itself, this female warrior class in Dahomey is really impressive to watch. I felt like a slacker. I mean, they were so conditioned. They were, Viola Davis, whom I also adore, you know, she's in great shape, but so is everybody else. I thought like I was somehow the slacker in the audience who should have been going to the gym or something, but within the film, they are referred to, there, there, are, there is, of course, the white colonial presence along the shoreline, at least. And so the Portuguese and others, you know, in, in the coastal towns refer to them as Amazons. So they, they go back to Greek mythology and think of the Amazons. And it's sort of as the African equivalent of that, as the film will mention. So um, it's based very much on those real events. Here's why I had some reservations about it. The depiction of the story is fascinating. And it's full of battles. And the battles are extremely well staged. So I'm not saying you should like cut out some of the battle footage. It's really, really you know, involving for me as a viewer. By the same token, so much of the footage is given to the actual battles that there were backstories, there were characters, there were other aspects of the film that I thought were underserved. So I think that I think the filmmaking itself is strong. The acting, particularly Viola Davis, great role for her, you know, tremendous response to that. However, I think the script is sort of undernourished. I think there are places where you want to know more about her, about her relationship with the king that she works for. Secondary characters kind of come and go. So I think it's lacking in terms of what I referred to as backstory and character development and so on. And ultimately kind of frustrating that way. I mean, I just felt like the film was strong, but could have been much
1: stronger. Yeah, I'm going to second that because the film barely addresses the moral complexity of the issue of slavery. And I thought it was cliche to include the romance, you know, and the waterfall. They could have cut that out completely. The fight scenes I thought were amazing. I liked the way it was shot from what I thought was a female perspective, which was did mostly show the choreography and the skill of the fighters, because that's, you know, what we were following. More than, you know, the blood and the gore, and, you know, the way I'm used to seeing those scenes play out in things like Gladiator or Braveheart or 300 or The Patriot. What I did think was absolutely fabulous, and I wanted to make sure I mentioned it, was the historically accurate costumes are to die for. The uh, cowrie shell decorations on some of the costumes are just absolutely beautiful. Just very much, I really appreciated the attention to detail in those small ways. It also reminded me like Black Panther Part Two, I think maybe because one of the previews was, you know, for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. So I already had that in my mind and it it sort of felt like it went with that as a group of stories. And I'm sure that's not the intention because it's it's got nothing to do with Black Panther.
0: Well, you know, the production design, costuming, all that first rate, it's really fabulous. You know, it's so convincing as you watch it. But again, in those battle sequences, which I keep returning to because the film keeps returning to them, they just go on and on. And so, as I mentioned earlier, there there are things involving character and storyline that aren't fully developed there. And as Marie mentioned, my greatest single reservation is although the slave trade is mentioned in the film, it's such a complex and, and, and fascinating issue. It's not really fully dealt with. And I thought, boy, you you really need to work that in better because, you know, this is a slave trading society, or at least the kingdom that they're fighting against is definitely a slave trading society. It's again, it's in the film, but, you know, for a few minutes at a time and then on to something else that should be, if not at the heart of the film, at least dealt with more extensively.
1: I also thought this was a great movie in terms of girl power. It's a wonderful movie to go see with other women because it is empowering in that way that the story is about how strong these women are, how tough they are. There's a scene where there's a female warrior standing opposite a male warrior, and they each have a tip of a spear going into their shoulder. and It's a game of chicken. Who's going to give up first because it's painful? And, you know, the woman prevails. You know, they're very tough. They're very Strong. I don't think I've seen any movie like that. Can you think of anything similar, Mike?
0: Well, I'll just say this: I think men can also enjoy this film, and because it's it's really so well done in so many ways, and the subject matter is so unknown or, or little known to most of us that it's really when I say educational, I mean that in a really positive, entertaining way. It's just I, I learned a lot watching this film about the society they lived in, about how, how the costumes, about the customs, all those things. I mean, it was a fascinating uh, lesson for me historically to watch this film. And even though it could have been stronger in so many ways, as we've indicated, it does have a lot of strength within it. You know, Viola Davis's performance, the historical accuracy of costuming and so on. So yeah, definitely go see it.
1: Now, Mike, would you say that there, do you think that there is a appetite out there for a sequel? I mean, you you mentioned quite accurately, I think. That they do introduce several secondary characters that you don't really, they don't really flesh them out. Is that because you could, with another movie, you know, maybe this just sets the stage and then there could be other stories from the same, you know, origin story?
0: Well, I, frankly, I don't know, but it seems to me that it could be the launching pad for sequels, yes. By the same token, when you watch a feature-length film, you want it to be satisfying in and of itself, don't you? I mean, you want it to work on its own terms, and this film doesn't quite. So if there were a sequel, hopefully it would resolve some of the things that are nagging at us from from this, this film here. But time will tell where that's concerned.
1: What was the audience like when you went to see it?
0: it was receptive. I thought, in fact, there was some applause actually, you know, during the battle sequences, you know, when some of the bad guys get it, you know, there was audience applause, people calling out. There was some call and response from the audience actually watching it. So when Marie talked about it in terms of female empowerment, it was there in the audience as much as on screen. Absolutely. It's very satisfying at that level.
1: I was in a pretty full theater and the scene where the young protagonist has a very significant role in the movie is disagreeing with her father about being married off. And he hauls off and slaps her. It was this audible gasp. And two women in the back said, when she reacts, says, you go, girl. And I thought it's it's always so funny to me when people actually talk back to the movie because it was like a, a wave of emotion went through the room. And like I said, the audible gasp and then you know two people said what everybody was thinking. Uh, so I like that very early on they established sympathy. And it was palpable. You know, I knew not only was I seeing what I was seeing, but it was a collective experience. We've talked about that before, how different it is to watch a movie in a theater rather than, you know, if you could have streamed this movie, you wouldn't get that sense of the audience reacting around you.
0: You're absolutely right. Uh, The audience I saw it with responded just as your audience did. And for me, that's an important part of the theater going experience, that it's a shared experience and and somebody will call out what we're all thinking. And then you can hear people sort of laughing and applauding in response to that. I mean, that's really where it becomes an interactive thing in in real time, in real space, the audience all responding to a moment like that. And, And that's one of the real pleasures of this film, actually, is it's very satisfying at that level.
1: It's also very satisfying, by the way, to check out Viola Davis's workout routine on Instagram. I highly recommend that. We are getting to the end of our episode, so I want to encourage everybody to check out our other episodes at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora and get in touch. You can email us at movies at howardcc.edu. Tell us what you think. What did you think of either of these movies or what would you like us to talk about on another episode? And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.